Murder in the North, Episode 4, Bobby. The story covers the tragic death of a child and contains details of violence and sexual assault that some listeners could find distressing. This is the story of Bobby. He died in his own home when he was 10 years old. He was vulnerable with little or no language and lived in isolation on a hidden away farm in a remote rural area. Nobody knew what was going on behind closed doors until it was too late. His story became a landmark case in Sweden, instigating legal reform and changes to child protection laws and protocols. You're listening to Murder in the North, a podcast about some of the most shocking criminal cases in Scandinavia. As researched by Anna Nilika and Barbara Gierhoff-Nilholm, and told by me, Jenna Sharp. Our account of these cases is based on sources in the public domain, including interviews, press releases, and court proceedings. Some narrative details were seen as irrelevant to the plot, and therefore left out. This podcast contains scenes of violence that some listeners may find distressing. Nina Aker dreams of a family. A family where everybody feels safe and secure, preferably somewhere in the countryside. Nina didn't grow up in a very safe environment. Her father was often violent to her mother and would drink a lot. Nina was bullied at school, and she learned to swallow the pain and put up a brave front. Over the years, she's put up a wall between herself and the rest of the world, learning to hide her emotions behind a hard facade. But inside, she feels unwanted ugly and alone. As a teenager, Nina looks for relationships with various men, seeking love and affirmation. But these encounters rarely lead to anything, and the relationships usually don't last. At the age of 19, she falls pregnant but the father is long gone from her life when, in March 1995, she gives birth to a son via an emergency caesarean. The boy is frail and has to spend time in an incubator. He also has a cleft lip, and because of the operations needed to correct this, he can't feed. Nina calls the baby Bobby. Nina's mother tries to help her daughter as best she can, but the family face many problems. Nina suffers from postnatal depression, as well as frequent panic attacks. On top of that, Bobby is born with a rare condition called Fragile X Syndrome. Doctors explain that the boy will never be able to lead an independent life. Fragile X 
is a genetic condition that causes a range of cognitive conditions. Bobby is found to have a complex set of learning difficulties, including autism and ADHD. To begin with, they live with Nina's mother, but Nina and her son soon move into their own home in Stenigsen, north of Gothenburg, on the west coast of Sweden. When Bobby turns three, social services connect him with a foster family with whom he spends every third weekend to help give Nina some respite. The Unabaks have the kind of family life that Nina had always envisioned for herself. Loving parents and two daughters who play the flute and violin. They live on a farm and have dogs, horses and other animals. But Bobby doesn't like staying with the Unabak family. He's afraid, especially of the animals. He often retreats to a corner, stressed. He shakes and is known to cover his ears. But little by little, Bobby grows used to the new situation and the Unabaks look after him like he's one of their own. Bobby adores it when the girls perform music and begins to enjoy playing with the dogs. In due course, he even learns to ride the family's Shetland pony in the yard with a body protector and a helmet on. The fostering arrangement with the Unibacks is extended so Bobby can go and see them at any time, including during the summer holidays. It can be very hard for parents to care for a child like Bobby. By age six, Bobby can only talk a little. Most of the time he's shy and withdrawn, but he also has sudden mood swings and tempers. He grows into a strapping young lad of ten, but with a developmental age similar to a five-year-old. For six years, Bobby stays with the Unabak family on a regular basis. But late in the summer of 2008, these visits come to an abrupt end. Nina has met someone who appears to make all of her dreams and wishes come true. Love, a sense of security, and a dream family life are within reach on his country estate, just outside the village of Nasho in Smolen. 125 miles inland. She meets Eddie in August through a phone dating line, and everything then happens very quickly. When Inga Unabak calls to arrange Bobby's next weekend visit, Nina and Bobby have already moved away. Nina explains that Bobby stayed with his granny for a few weeks in September but that she has collected him now so he can start at a school specialising in learning disabilities in Nasho in October. She and Eddie are engaged. It's not as if Nina simply ups sticks to move to the countryside with her new man. She considered it very carefully and even drew up a list of pros and cons. He's got a car his own house, his own business. 
But the list of cons is longer. Eddie is controlling, jealous, a workaholic. He drinks too much and tries to change me, she writes, and his fantasies are morbid. But Nina is in love with Eddie, and that's that. They're together now, the three of them, a family. Six months later, on the 29th of January, 2006, Eddie and Nina phoned the police from a shopping center in Gothenburg. They'd been on their way to visit Bobby's grandmother in Stenigsen, and had stopped off briefly to buy her a bunch of flowers. Bobby insisted on staying in the car, and they'd been gone for 15 minutes tops. When they got back, Bobby was gone, Eddie tells the officer on duty. It's a freezing cold Sunday. It's snowing and windy. The police believe that if this disabled boy really is wandering around in the dark on his own, his life is in immediate danger. A search for Bobby gets underway. Police comb bus stops, stations, and streets in the area with police dogs. The shopping centre, which is now closed, is scoured as well. Local hospitals are alerted, and the police look for potential witnesses. But the boy seems to have disappeared off the face of the earth. After six hours, a missing person's notice with a photo of Bobby is sent to the media. Bobby Iker, ten years old, four foot nine, medium to large build, brown eyes, black hair, and dark skin tone. It's possible that Bobby is hiding somewhere, and all the commotion is making him scared to emerge again. Because of his disabilities, he can be quite anxious around people, Nina explains to the police. She and Eddie have driven to the police station together. There, they're given coffee and something to eat before they're questioned further. Evening turns to night, and the search is extended. The police are now also using boats, helicopters, and teams of search dogs. Even the army is deployed. Around two in the morning, Bobby's former foster family are woken up by a phone call. Do they have any idea where the boy might be? Foster mother Inga Unabak listens with great concern to the officer on the phone. Something about the story doesn't add up. Like Nina, Inga describes the boy as extremely timid. The world is a scary place to Bobby. He needs a lot of hand-holding to help him conquer his fear of something new. Inga simply can't imagine that Bobby would have unbuckled his seatbelt, opened the door, and left the car all by himself. He'd never have the courage to do all that. Somebody must have hurt him, Inga is sure of it. The search continues. Summer houses, garden sheds, garages, ditches, cellars and crawl spaces are searched. Every single tip 
However vague, the police follow up on it. Four days after Bobby's disappearance, the police turn to the public in an episode of Efterlust, Sweden's answer to Crime Watch. But nothing comes of it. The broadcast doesn't yield any useful information. The search in and around the shopping centre is halted. It's now all but inconceivable that Bobby ran away of his own accord. The police reclassify the case as a crime. The investigators start reconstructing the hours prior to Bobby's disappearance. In search of clues, police try to establish the route that Eddie, Nina and Bobby took from Jönköping to Gothenburg. A security camera captures them at a petrol station where they stopped briefly. The footage shows Nina and Eddie, but not Bobby. Police also question Bobby's biological father, who is living in southern Sweden. Again, it doesn't lead to anything. His contact with Nina and Bobby had been limited to sporadic phone calls and the occasional exchange of photos. He's only met his son once. But Bobby's grandmother hasn't seen Bobby in months, she reveals. The last time was when Nina came to collect him, just before they moved to Eddie's farm. The teachers at the school that Bobby had been attending since October describe him as a cheerful lad who's made huge progress lately. He can now write his own name and has learned to count. He can even do simple sums. But he hasn't been to school since December. The last time was during an outing to the swimming pool, followed by hot dogs. Bobby had a great time, according to his teachers. But the next day, Nina phoned to say he was ill. Apparently, he had a cold and a fever. He didn't return before Christmas. And when the school got in touch with Nina after the holidays, she said that the cold had turned into flu. They agreed that Bobby would see the school doctor at the start of February. In their statement, Bobby's former foster family say they did everything they could to stay in touch with Nina and Bobby after they moved. Inga Unabak even offered to drive to Smolen to come and collect Bobby so he could see his two foster sisters, the dogs and the horses again. And besides, the family were keen to say a proper goodbye to him. But it just never happened. Nina kept cancelling, usually because either she or Bobby or Eddie was ill. It had been the Unabaks who informed the council of the fact that Nina and Bobby had moved. Nina herself had never reported it. After that, there was no further contact, neither with Nina nor with Bobby. Even the local authorities in Smolen, where Nina and Bobby had moved to live with Eddie, had not been notified of the move. Inga Unabak explains 
that she often felt apprehensive while on the phone with Nina. It didn't sound like she was doing particularly well or enjoying life in her new home. Inga was under the impression that Nina had to call her outside the house, and often their conversations were suddenly cut off. She had a sneaking suspicion that this new boyfriend, Eddie, was rather controlling. That description turns out to be a massive understatement. Nina is full of hope when she moves to Nasho. Finally, her dreams of a rural ideal and a perfect family are coming true. And Eddie has more to offer than just a tranquil life in the countryside. He's wealthy, too. But as it turns out, Eddie's country estate is little more than an old dilapidated farmhouse. There's only cold water, the toilets in the outhouse, and a basic wood burner is the closest thing they have to central heating. The nearest neighbours live over a mile away. They avoid Eddie if they can. Eddie was very friendly when he first moved into the area with his chickens and sheep. In those early days, he'd still turn up to neighbours' barbecues, for instance. But it wasn't long before he showed his true colours. Local residents describe him as having an explosive temperament, which is exacerbated by his excessive drinking. And if his new girlfriend believes that he's rich, then he's led her up the garden path. When Nina gets to know Eddie through phone dating and falls in love with him, he's only been in the house in Nasho for a few weeks. He had just been released from prison, where he served a three-year sentence for violent assault and rape. The victim was his then-girlfriend, who testifies against him in court. She describes their relationship as one full of fear, brutality, coercion and sexual abuse, with Eddie in the role of a sadistic dictator. He's described as someone obsessed with violent pornography, someone who likes to push the boundaries of sexual experimentation, resulting in extreme S&M and bondage. Eddie denies all the accusations in court. He claims that his girlfriend shares his sexual predilections and that everything they did together was consensual. The court doesn't believe him. The woman describes in detail how Eddie would tie her up and beat her and show no mercy even when she begged him to stop. He beat her with whips, leather belts, walking sticks, and even with strips of timber. Occasionally, he'd leave her tied up for hours on end at the mercy of his perverse fantasies. Then there were times when he threw her out of the house naked. It would be up to her to decide whether to roll through stinging nettles or let herself be eaten alive by a thousand mosquitoes. 
Eddie would rape her repeatedly, in ways that the court can't dismiss as sexual experimentation or role-play. The woman describes how Eddie kept her imprisoned at home. He did everything he could to prevent her from pocketing money, and if he was unable to stay at home to keep an eye on her, he'd make sure there was no petrol in the car. One day, she manages to hide a 100 kroner note from him and is finally able to escape. She takes dozens of videotapes with her, on which Eddie documented his abuse of her and also her four-year-old son. The woman feels that her own ordeal pales into insignificance compared to what Eddie might have done to her child. If the boy didn't eat fast enough, for instance, Eddie would grab him by the scruff of his neck and push him into his plate of food. Another time, he dragged the child out of the house and left him out in the freezing cold as a punishment. After a while, the woman tells the court, Eddie began saying that he couldn't stand the boy and that he'd find a way to get rid of him. Her testimony is supported by the video recordings that Eddie made and the statement of another ex-girlfriend. Fourteen days after Nina and Eddie phoned the police to report Bobby missing, they're arrested. There's still no trace of the boy, but the public prosecutor believes there are sufficient grounds for suspecting them both. Nina is pushed hard during questioning, but like Eddie, she sticks to her earlier story. Bobby wanted to stay in the car while they went into the shopping centre to buy flowers for Nina's mother. They'd been away for about 15 minutes before they got back to the car and found Bobby gone. Two days later, Nina's lawyer suddenly comes forward to say that she wants to tell the truth. Nina now admits that her son wasn't in the car when they left home on the 29th of January. At that point, Bobby was no longer alive. It was an accident, she claims. Bobby died suddenly, and she and Eddie didn't know what to do. They left him in the hayloft to buy time to come up with a solution. Nina describes how she made sandwiches and prepared a thermos flask with coffee before she and Eddie got in the car to find a suitable place to leave Bobby. On this occasion, they ended up returning home with the body and putting Bobby back in the hayloft. A few days later, they set off again, at night this time. They drove to one of the frozen lakes nearby and drilled a hole in the ice. Early in the morning, they returned with Bobby's remains. The body had been heavy, so they put it on a sled. They dropped the boy into the hole and let him disappear into the water. With the help of Nina's description, the police quickly identify the lake in question. 
They also managed to locate the hole in the ice, 26 meters from the shore. Divers find Bobby's body at the bottom of the lake, wrapped in plastic bags and carpets and carefully secured with tape. Nina and Eddie are taken into custody. Eddie now admits to lying to the police about Bobby's disappearance. He also admits to helping dispose of the body, but denies killing the child. It was Nina who did, or so he claims. Nina also denies any involvement in Bobby's death. Eventually, she points the finger at Eddie and starts talking about everything that happened at the house. Her story begins in November, when Eddie loses his job. From that moment on, the couple spend their time drinking, and Eddie's outbursts take a turn for the worse. He becomes more violent and unpredictable, and it's Bobby who bears the brunt of it. Eddie admits to punishing Bobby now and then, claiming that the boy had frequent temper tantrums and would turn violent. The only thing that helped in those cases was sending him outside with his coat on so he could cool off. That's how Eddie describes his approach to parenting. But Nina has a very different take on events at the farm. After she and Eddie decide not to send Bobby back to school in December, he becomes part of the couple's sadistic drinking games. He's not sent out into the snow without a coat on, but naked, with his hands and feet tied. Inside the house, they subject him to regular beatings, usually with the vacuum cleaner hose, and brand his arms with candles. Wasn't bad enough. Eddie administers electric shocks, often to the boy's genitals. They tie Bobby to a chair with gaffer tape and leave him like that for days on end. They force alcohol down his throat through a funnel, and when he can no longer control his bladder, they beat him or drape the wet pants round his head. Most of the time, she just sits and watches, Nina says. Eddie is the mastermind behind it all, but sometimes he forces her to take part, and she's too scared to stand up to him, she explains to the detectives, because she's afraid of what Eddie might think of next. Nina is prepared to help the investigators reconstruct Bobby's final 24 hours. She goes back with them to Eddie's remote farmhouse. The peeling paint on the door is a taster of what awaits the investigating team inside. Filthy rooms full of empty cans, bottles and other rubbish. Holes in the rotten floorboards 
covered with tarpaulin. Porn magazines, whips, dildos, and other sex toys everywhere you look. Nothing in here suggests that this was once the home of a ten-year-old child. In front of the police cameras, Nina tries to recollect what happened on the day of Bobby's death. A dummy used to represent her son's body lies in the snow outside the house. With a big shovel, Nina covers him with more snow. She shows how she sat on top of Bobby so he couldn't move, and how Eddie then stomped on his chest. Nina and Eddie leave the boy outside for half an hour. When they bring him back in, they tie him to a chair in front of the fireplace. His lips are blue, and he doesn't respond when they talk to him, Nina explains. She tries to feed him a piece of orange, but she has to push it in. When she wants to take him to bed, Bobby is unable to walk unaided. Eddie has to carry him up to his cold little room under the eaves. When Eddie goes to check on Bobby half an hour later, the boy is still very cold. He calls down, and when Nina arrives upstairs, she finds Bobby lifeless in bed. She tries mouth to mouth, but Bobby still has the orange wedge in his mouth, and his lips taste of vomit. She states, "It's too late. He's dead." Nina covers him with a blanket. And goes downstairs where Eddie is waiting in the kitchen. She downs a large glass of whiskey, and then decides to go to bed herself. Forensic investigators determine that Bobby choked on his own vomit. That was the official cause of death. But the many injuries, bruises, scars, and bumps. Point to a prolonged period of systematic abuse. Eddie claims that it was Nina who used to regularly beat her son. Besides, some marks could be attributed to Bobby himself, as he fell down the stairs a few days before he died. Eddie strongly denies any involvement in the boy's death. He was the one who tried to resuscitate Bobby. When they found him cold in bed, Eddie feels that he's being treated unfairly, just like the last time when he stood trial for assaulting his ex-girlfriend. The police would do better to focus on Nina, as she used to complain bitterly about the child, and repeatedly said she was fed up with him. She detested the boy, and when Nina gets angry. She loses all sense of perspective, Eddie claims. He'd had to step in often enough to protect the boy. The investigators put this to Nina. She admits to saying some bad things about her son, but only when she was extremely frustrated. 
he could be a very difficult child. But it was definitely Eddie who kept punishing and tormenting the boy, she claims. Just like he'd punish and abuse her whenever the mood took him. That's why she was never able to stop him when he went for Bobby. She was too afraid. Very soon after meeting him, he starts sharing his morbid fantasies, as she calls them. Nina has no experience of any of these things. When Eddie asks her to read an erotic story in which a woman is tortured with a lighter, she does so without really understanding what's going on. She's simply head over heels and scared that he'll reject her when she doesn't do what he says. That's why she lets Eddie do as he pleases. He ties her up, beats her with straps and sticks, pours hot wax onto the soles of her feet and puts clamps on her nipples. She's also given electric shocks and forced to lie in the snow, she says. Like Bobby. The police investigators ask her why she didn't leave him. Her response? She was in love. In fact, she still loves Eddie. In the end, when the case of Bobby's death is brought to trial, Nina and Eddie both end up in the dock. The case is brought on the basis of Nina's comprehensive statement and her reconstruction of events. In addition, the court can draw on the coroner's report, detailing the many injuries on Bobby's body. Both suspects deny killing Bobby. In their defense, they claim not to have realized how poorly he was when they put him to bed the evening he died. When the severity of the situation dawned on them, they did everything they could to resuscitate him. Nina argues that Eddie was the driving force behind the abuse, claiming that he more or less coerced her into participating. The two suspects are firmly pitted against one another. Eddie's lawyer states that his client still maintains that it was Nina who mistreated Bobby over and over again. The court finds both suspects equally guilty of the death of the defenseless child. Regardless of who did what, there's no doubt in the judge's mind that they are jointly responsible. As the verdict states, it is difficult to imagine physical and mental abuse more ruthless than what Eddie Larson and Nina Aker inflicted on Bobby. The court stresses that Bobby's disabilities made him all the more dependent on a loving family, while also leaving him more vulnerable to Eddie and Nina's violent impulses. The couple are convicted of grievous bodily harm, 
false imprisonment, desecration of a body, and filing a false report. They're both held responsible for Bobby's death. The burden of proof for premeditated murder hasn't been met, according to the court. The mother and stepfather are convicted of gross negligence manslaughter. They alone are responsible for Bobby's death, for his being abused, hypothermic and exhausted, and ultimately choking on his own vomit. Psychiatric reports show that the suspects can both be held fully accountable for their actions. The court sentences Eddie and Nina each to 10 years in prison. The maximum penalty for gross negligence manslaughter. Bobby is buried two days before the verdict. His mother is allowed to attend, accompanied by two police officers. The ceremony has been organized by the Unabaks. Their two daughters play and sing one last time for their little foster brother. The church is filled with red roses that have been sent from all over Sweden in response to a newspaper appeal. 29,049 red roses for Bobby. Bobby's tragic fate, his unhappy life, and his cruel death spark a public debate in Sweden. How can a ten-year-old child disappear for a whole month without anyone raising the alarm? And how were the perpetrators able to get away with it for so long? The discussions result in a new law named after Bobby which comes into effect in 2008. The law sets out stricter guidelines for those working with children and young people on reporting suspicions of abuse and violence. It's hoped that the failures that led to Bobby's death will never happen again. Every year, some four or five children die as a result of domestic violence in Sweden. Since 2006, the year in which Bobby was part of that statistic, this figure has remained unchanged. Eddie and Nina are released again in 2012, six years after Bobby's death. Both are given a new name and a new identity. Eddie appears in court on two further occasions. First, he is detained for unlawful possession of a knife, and later, he is arrested for possessing and distributing child pornography as part of a large-scale operation. Following her release, Nina is placed in an institution for ex-offenders. She starts a relationship with a man who like her, grew up with violence and abuse. As a teenager, 
high on alcohol and drugs. This man shot his father with a hunting rifle. While in prison, he found God, and he says that, aside from Jesus, Nina is the best thing that's ever happened to him. Nina is in her early forties when she becomes pregnant with the man's baby. She gives birth in January 2017, eleven years after Bobby's death. This time, the relevant agencies are more vigilant. They make sure that the new parents are housed in a supported living facility so that professionals can assess whether they're capable of looking after their child. It soon emerges that they're not. The parents are unable to meet the child's social and emotional needs, reads the official report. Neither Nina nor her partner are capable of comforting the boy when he cries. The baby's physical, mental and emotional well-being is at risk. The authorities are left with no choice but to remove the child from Nina. The boy is only three months old at the time. From Podomo, this is Murder in the North. A new episode every week, wherever you get podcasts. And for early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts.